0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to the European Startup Show special March Women series. In recognition of International Women's Day, I'm featuring a few amazing women entrepreneurs in Europe for the month of March. My guest today is Sujata Bhatia, Chief Operating Officer of Neobank Monzo. Monzo was an early market leader in the digital banking space and today has close to 5 million customers and 80,000 small business customers. Prior to Monzo, Sujata spent 16 years at American Express, where she was Senior Vice President of Global Merchant Services in Europe. I'm really delighted to have Sujata on the show today and hear more about her overall journey and specifically what she's doing at Monzo. So welcome, Sujata. Thanks. It's so nice to be here with you. <laughs> so, I wanted to start off going all the way back a few months to May 2020 when you joined Monzo. You joined obviously in very turbulent times, both in the world with the pandemic causing panic and also in Monzo itself with Tom Blomfield stepping down, new funding that you got, but at a drastically reduced 40% valuation and also a round of layoffs. So, I wanted to start off by saying, what did you do in your first 30, 60, 90 days getting into Monzo in that context? Yeah, it was definitely like a baptism by fire. I mean, I guess just for context, though,
1: like I decided to join Monzo after the pandemic hit. So it was not... Everything you just listed did happen to the company, but I knew what I was signing up to. I knew that I was signing up to a roller coaster that might be more intense than your typical startup one. And so I think there were some things that were easy to anticipate before I joined. It was easy to anticipate the down rounds. We just had the timing challenge of being in the market at that exact time when the pandemic hit. And it was also pretty easy to anticipate redundancies because typically the guidance for investors at that time was like, take one deep cut. They had a lot of learnings from the global financial crisis of like, plan for the worst. And go from there. Then, of course, a new CEO came in that was less easy to to plan for, and that happened a couple weeks before I joined. But I think with all of that, it meant that the org was faced with a lot of change and uncertainty in rapid succession: global pandemic, a lot of change internally, change in leadership. And it's a young organization, like many fintech startups. I mean, the average age is twenty nine. A lot of people at Monzo had not experienced real business adversity; they'd never been through a redundancy. They Many had been perhaps personally hired by Tom and they'd only ever been on a rocket ship headed in one direction. I would say though, that that's not really like a new story. In fact, if you take the pandemic out of it as a unique catalyzing event, the story is more typical than not. And so, you know, every great business if you think of them out there has some version of this formative moment in their history or more than one, if you're thinking of like the world or others. So my job coming into that as a senior leader was to quickly get settled help the teams navigate through that uncertainty and support them in being able to see out the other side. And also initially just focus on the biggest fires. So I think you asked what was the 30, 60, 90. I mean, practically that meant from a business priorities perspective, I arrived the week after we had announced redundancies and one of my responsibilities is to lead the people organization. So practically my job was to help conduct those redundancies in a really humane way and in harmony with the core values of the company and how you treat people. In my view, you only get one shot at that. And so that was a really critical part of my role very, very early on, standing up in front of all those people and, you know, taking some of them through their first heartbreak. There were also some specific areas of my remit that needed immediate attention. I just had to wade deeply into those. Those are business priorities. Then from like kind of a people and culture perspective, one was getting to know my new boss that I had really only ever met once on a FaceTime call is sometime in the cell process of my due diligence with the role. Uh, serendipitously, I think it worked out really beautifully. And if I could choose again, I would choose to work with him. That's always the best sign. So we had a really great kind of instant chemistry, which made a big difference. But then for the broader executive team where there was a lot of new players, it was rapidly accelerating our forming as a functional executive team and building those relationships really quickly so that we could be operationalizing and doing what the organization needed from us. For the broader team, it was getting to know the whole team remotely. That really required me to ask a lot of questions, soaking in the learnings to make sure that I could be accretive to the culture of the business and not be jarring or more destabilizing at a time where the organization needed really true leadership to help build them up. And then another people perspective was really diving in quickly in the deep end with stakeholders. So the board, investors, regulators, to just understand their expectations and priorities to make sure that we could deliver on them. I think what helped was that I had done my due diligence on the mission and culture of Monzo. Before I chose to join, I left a 16 year career where I really loved the company. I was at where people felt like family to me. It had fit me like a glove in a lot of ways and I wasn't running away from anything. So when I chose to leave, I was very deliberate that I didn't want to leave this culture that I had admired that valued people and customers and diversity and inclusion and go somewhere that didn't fit those values. And so. Monzo's unique culture and values, which were really well articulated and deeply embedded in the company, Mm -hmm. spent a lot of time understanding that and their mission. And I think that was one of the biggest factors in me deciding to join the company. I felt very quickly comfortable with the people. You know, I onboarded Mm -hmm. remotely. I never met anybody in the company, but maybe like a handful of people of the 1,300 people in the company. But I very quickly felt comfortable. So that was a pleasant surprise. But Probably not a surprise because I've done so much work on the culture.
0: When you say you've done so much work on the culture, how did you do that? Was it just reading through the mission? How do you absorb a company's culture and, and really internalize it?
1: Yeah, it was a lot of things. I mean, I took eight months before I decided to join the company. So it wasn't like I jumped in blindly. I spent a lot of time you get to know the product, you get to see how they articulate their customers. That's usually a great sign of how a company's culture operates, the way they treat their Mm -hmm. customers and the way they think about their customers. And Monzo has a very unique uh, version of that. You can even read like on the website, there was an amazing manifesto written by the writers that talks about tone of voice and why it's so important to be able to speak clearly and transparently to be able to be inclusive. And so a lot of that kind of reading was really helpful. A lot of it was meeting people in the company and around the company. So I spent a lot of time, every conversation I had with Monzo, I think, led to another conversation with another person. And every single one, one of the things I was testing for was culture. And I would ask questions to see how they thought about it. But I also asked the board, I think I met three or four board members and I'd met maybe four different investors over that time and people that had left the company to just understand like if it was walking the walk. So I I definitely did my due diligence, I guess.
0: Yeah, sounds like it. But look, you make it sound so easy. I came in, I did this and I did this and I looked at the priorities, I put out fires, but I can't imagine any of that being easy. I've interviewed a lot of companies about how they were navigating the pandemic. But many of them were in their early stage where they didn't have so many costs like overhead and people that when the revenue dried up, they had this huge imbalance that they had to fix. Whereas a company like Monzo is a completely different story. How did you navigate the pandemic? What are some lessons learned or advice or a framework of thinking about how to navigate something like a pandemic that you could share because this podcast is meant for other entrepreneurs and I'm sure they could learn from a company like Monzo.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there's things we did well and things we did less well. So I think in hindsight, it's always 2020. I guess if I go pre-Monzo, one thing that I had that allowed me to sort of have a North Star or a framework to think about it was I had lived through the global financial crisis in my previous company. I was a chief of staff to someone very senior in that Mm. company during the global financial crisis. So, you know, like if you quote Hamilton, I was in the room when it happened a lot of the time where big decisions were being made about being able to be liquid and at a fairly apocalyptic time for many big businesses. Because I had that privilege, I, I had the ability to see what really senior leaders had to do. And it doesn't really matter if you're a company of 65,000 or a company of 1,300, what what you have to do when there's that much uncertainty around you. And I was able to bring that learning into my time at Monzo. Not just how do you go about it, but how do you keep your eye on the horizon? Yeah. So, Janelle was the... CEO of Amex when I went, when we went through global financial crisis, and he used to always say, define reality, but provide hope. And he did that really beautifully. And so that, mm. that I've sort of taken throughout and the leader that I worked with at Amex at the time, who's incredibly inspirational, used to share with people like focus on what you can control, focus on your customers, focus on your colleagues, don't hunker down, you know, be on your front foot, be outward facing. And so those leadership Mantras were with me when I joined Monzo, and our CEO TS, has had very similar formative experiences, so it was almost unsaid. We both kind of just knew how to tackle that world. I would say some of the the classic wisdom for startups is in that very uncertain environment, don't do death by a thousand cuts, plan for your worst case scenario and, and do that once and then move forward. For Vermont, we, we followed that conventional wisdom. We rebounded pretty fast. In the course of the pandemic, we have had a, a pretty successful turn in that time. So, you know, you described the kind of apocalyptic stuff at the beginning, but during the pandemic, our teams shipped three big products for the company. And on this end of the pandemic, we're, our revenue is 30% higher than it was before. And 25% of that is from new products that we didn't have pre-pandemic, so we have a very diversified revenue stream and we're hiring at pace again. So we didn't stop looking for opportunity and believing in the in the future of the company and investing there. And so I think that that meant that for us, the pandemic was actually still a time of growth.
0: So you, you released Monzo Premium and then Bronzo Plus. You basically said, let's take the opportunity. Let's take this crisis that's unfolding around us and invest in what could, fuel our engine of growth?
1: Yeah, we didn't back off from our growth levers. I mean, we still have a great fundamentals. So if you think about it, we now have past 5 million customers, but at that point, 4 point something, right? 4 point something yep. customers. An NPS of 70, even through the pandemic, our customers were with us and engaged with us. We had three major products, business banking plus and premium. And we focused on those levers because we knew that at any point in our cycle, those are going to be uh, areas for growth for us. So we can double down.
0: When you think about, again, the layoffs happening and then your funding at a much lower valuation, especially people who've been at Monzo for a long time, I can imagine this being quite a hard pill to swallow. So in terms of the morale of the company, You gave some mantras that you came with, but it's one thing to say it, but what else tactically did Monzo do or you and the leadership team do to help with keeping the morale of the people around? I think a few things.
1: So of course, first of all, as leadership, you have to be present. People need to hear from you and you have to communicate more frequently, not less in those times of uncertainty. And so, you know, we definitely did that. We spent some time as a leadership team, articulating what our goals would be over that period of time to try to make them concrete. And we went out to the company with those to just basically say, this is what it takes. This is the roadmap for success for the next six Mm -hmm. months. It's very concrete what we need to deliver so that everybody can see that it wasn't this big existential crisis. It's like, what's the plan and what's the roadmap to get there? Um, And what do we have to deliver on? And so I think that was really helpful. We celebrated success with regular cadences when we had these big shipping moments, when and premium were, Blowing away their targets in terms of signups, we wanted to make sure that the the teams could hear about that. The investor sentiment very quickly changed in. Externally, we just closed 200 million pounds of a funding round, and so we brought some of those investors in. Like, why are you investing? What is the thesis mm. for that? Like, hear those voices. We also spent some time on culture. So, you know, Monzo had a great amount of work that was done in a really grassroots way to define the culture of the company. But it, we spent some time also talking about what we call kind of winning behaviors or subbits of that culture to say, like, these are the kinds of things that are going to help us be successful in terms of how we all interact. And spent time talking to the teams about that. And I think more than anything, there's a culture in Monzo is a value called default to transparency. And we tried to really hold that dear, which is give people context and be transparent with everything that we did. People want to know they can trust their leaders. They want to know that you're going to define reality, but give them hope. And, you know, that you've got it, that you understand where we need to get to, that there is a plan, that there is a vision and that Makes it just much easier, I think, for everybody to take away some of the anxiety that exists.
0: I think that makes so much sense. Having that plan is definitely something that can help focus the company on something more constructive and productive than spinning around with negative behavior. But again, it sounds really easy, but I can't imagine even the leadership team getting together and saying, here's what we're going to do. You obviously needed the backing of the shareholders, the investors and everybody in the leadership team to have brought into that roadmap to be able to execute on it.
1: Yeah, early on, we did like an off site together. We sat on a roof terrace in Bethnal Green where we scoped that all out. These are the goals. This is what we want people to spend time on with us. This is where we want them to focus. And it was really important that we be in lockstep on that and then launched it together as an executive team. I will say that if I think about what we did in the pen, you know, and we're still in a pandemic, but like in the most extreme part of it is we probably spent less time talking about mission and vision and much more focused on a a more tactical execution plan. And I think that that was very deliberate because we really wanted to be able to give people bite-sized chunks as they're sitting remote, faced with uncertainty all over the world of like, this is the building blocks for success. And if we do these things, we will get there. But we're now at a point where I think we recognize that we need to spend more time back on the mission and the vision again. You know, there's a point in in a pandemic where talking about the lofty mission and vision actually feels out of sight of what's achievable, especially when everybody's filled with uncertainty and doubt. But, but you can't stay in that execution phase for too long in a growth company because a lot of people are there because of the impact they're going to have on the world and society and to be part of a rocket ship. And so now I think we're at a point where we have all these proof points. We've turned that around and we feel really great about the momentum. And so it's back to talking about, you know, the bigger lofty things again.
0: Interesting. Is there anything looking back at how you handle the last few months, which if you had to go back, you would do differently?
1: I mean, I think if I knew now how quickly for us we would turn back to really positive momentum, would we have redundancies are super destabilizing and they're hard for a business to swallow and they do kind of set you back. And so at the time I don't think we had any information that would have told us what the right thing to do, that, that it was right to do something different. But in hindsight, I probably wouldn't have, wouldn't have run through that if I knew how quickly it would have turned. Having said that, I don't think I can give that advice to any other startup because you, we didn't know where we were heading into.
0: Yeah. I was just going to say, I mean, it's, it's hard to actually have a concrete plan and know what's going on when no one in the world yeah. knew what was going to go on and how this was going to unfold. So I think that that's pretty fair. So look, Obviously the reason they brought you in was really to help Monzo grow up a little bit. At some point, all startups need to do that. Right. But I, have to ask, how do you balance the old guard and, and the sort of startup culture that came with transitioning Monzo to a more established business? I mean, you've mentioned some things already in what we've talked about, but how do you balance the need for structure with the need for agility and innovation? I think it's something that big companies struggle with, but I'm just curious in this phase that Monzo is in, and especially with someone with your background coming from a big company like Amex, how do you balance those two things?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think if I'd started by saying like, I'm here to help Monzo grow up, that would have been failure. I actually think Monzo was growing up quite nicely without me. I would say that I was definitely brought in at a point in time where my skills and experience were more fit for purpose in the scale-up part of that business. So, yeah, and you're right, the startup to scale-up transition is a really well, well-known one. I think there's, death is becoming a big company, a big unwieldy corporate bureaucratic entity. I think we've done a few different things. The first is one thing to keep in mind that's unique to Monzo is that we are a technology business that is a bank. And so one of our sayings internally is that the fusion of technology and banking is our strength Mm -hmm. that's going to make us successful. And so you need a mix of both to be successful. And actually we started very tech heavy and then we needed a little bit more banking to balance that out, to be able to create the right balance. As part of that, we had to do a lot of recruiting and we brought in a number of really good leaders for that next phase. We brought in a head of borrowing with banking experience, a chief risk officer, general counsel. We brought in a chief people officer. But I think in all of those hires, the key was the mindset of the people that we brought in so if you have people come in that say like oh this is how it works in a big company or a bank and we should do that that's a disaster and prior to when i joined i think there was some false starts with some of those in some of those experiences but everyone that we brought in i think that brief has been super clear the outcomes focused that's the guidance and i think the goal is to simplify and create scalable foundations but avoid meaningless process or mindless frameworks. There's no patience for that. It really is about simplification, scalability, and, and driving great outcomes.
0: It's really good advice. How do you interview for that? What are some questions that you gave guidance on asking that would unearth that specific quality?
1: Oh, we got pretty tactical. So our chief technology officer sat down with our chief risk officer and said, here is something that the regulators want me to do. What is the, this is what, I believe I've built, and this is where I think the value is, as a chief risk officer, how would you evaluate that? And how would you provide assurance to people that this makes sense? And what process would you tell me to put in place to be able to do that that doesn't kill Mm. all innovation and the ability to change? And he would interview for that mindset, and I would do the same. You know, when I had our chief people officer and I was interviewing her, I talked about what do you do about a performance framework and what's the process that you put in place for this business? And I was looking to see, are you going to tell me that you want to put in this you know, nine box process with X, Y and Z and these five checkpoints? like, Or do you understand that as a nimble organization, central processes are a tax on people and they need to be really easy to consume? And about the simplest possible way to get to the outcomes that we need. And and so those were the kinds of questions that you ask in that recruiting process. Just see, like, are you, the thing you're testing for is, are you saying, I've done it this way here and I wanna bring it to you and do it that way? Or are you taking a first principles approach to, I have all this experience, here is your problem statement. How am I going to reverse engineer that to figure out where I can add value and take bits of what I know and something else to be able to create that outcome? And that is what makes really great successful executives in that transition.
0: It's almost like you're looking for a problem solver. That's 100% right, right? yeah. Yeah. And someone that
1: gets turned on by solving problems, not exhausted. And you can see it in their eyes if they're desperate to like take your problem and fit it to something they know to give them comfort or if yeah. they're leaning into, oh, that's really interesting. I haven't thought of a problem that way. What do I know that could help me solve that? And it's a totally yeah. different approach and we want the sec- the latter, um, not the
0: former. I, I love that uh, advice. Okay, it sounds like, Things are turning around for Monzo. But the last time I checked, when I look at the news, it still says Starling Bank has reported breaking even. They're raising a huge Series D round of funding. Their fourth quarter where they're being profitable, they're gaining market share. They've just hired 150 people. How do you and the new leadership team define a path for success at Monzo? And how worried are you about Monzo and its ability to turn profitable?
1: I'm not worried. (laughs) I think that people forget that like being a bank is actually not a mystery. It's not like a, a business model that's not understood. We're not creating a business model. We're creating an entirely new way to work with customers, to help them understand and make their money work for them and, you know, work within their lifestyle. But the fundamental business model of a bank is not that different. We have a 10x cost advantage on any incumbent bank. We don't have yeah. branches. We have a fundamentally very scalable platform. We have now a whole array of products and services that are contribution margin positive for our customers. So as a function of as you grow, that becomes both revenue and profit. The momentum that we have behind us is real and significant. So I don't think we lack comfort in that. I mean, across our Paid and business banking accounts, we have over 200,000 subscription accounts across both of those, all three of those products. There's about three billion dollars, three billion pounds of deposits with us. And we have around 100,000 customers a month coming to us organically. You know, that's Mm -hmm. growth that's just coming through the door. I think I talked to you about our revenue is 30% higher than it was at the beginning of the pandemic. And over a quarter of that is from new revenue sources. So we have a very diversified revenue base that we didn't have a year ago. So all of the proof points, can you take this brand that customers are evangelical about, that they have all this relationship with and that they feel connected to, can you take that and turn it into monetizable outcomes that provide value to those customers we have all those proof points now and the last year has shown us that so we don't spend a lot of time worrying about can we become profitable we spend a lot more time thinking about like how do we get to the next five million customers
0: but if you compare not with incumbents but with other neo banks i feel like they're very similar in terms of the user experience and what they offer you gave a number around how many uh, business customers you have is the way to profitability basically getting more of those paying customers from your business. I think Starling Bank has 15% of a very small base as their business customers versus Monzo has a much larger base, but a much smaller percentage is the business. Is that kind of the path that you see for Monzo to get to the next level?
1: We have a few different revenue levers. And the way a bank makes money is a few different things. Subscription accounts, lending. And for us, it's responsible lending and treasury. Those are the three basic ways that a bank makes money. And so all of those levers are available to us and all of those other challengers. I don't actually spend a lot of time comparing us to challengers because um, ultimately, I believe all ships rise together. What we're trying to do is redefine the category. What we're trying to do is redefine banking and how banking works for our customers and how money works for customers. So... Whether any of those other companies are successful, for me, those are all positive proof points of the need for change and disruption.
0: Okay. I have one more question and then we can revert back to building the company and the entrepreneurship part of it. U.S. expansion. I was just curious, why U.S.? It's so competitive. Why not other emerging markets that have such a fragmented financial services landscape?
1: Not only US. So maybe that's the way to answer your question. Why US next, I think is Mm -hmm. pretty clear. So first of all, I would say we have a long way to go in the UK. We have 5 million customers. There are many, many million more. We're probably the biggest digital bank in the UK, but there's many, many more to go after. So there is a long way to go and great runway just to be a successful UK um, entity. In terms of the US, it's appealing for a few reasons. The economics of baseline payments in the US are... Uh, fundamentally different than they are in continental Europe and in the UK. They're not regulated in the same way. So you already have like a 5X margin in the U.S. for basic transactional payments. That's the first thing I'd say. I, I know you talk about the U.S. as competitive, but it's a huge space. And actually, that's true. It's really just getting started. But I think more importantly than all of that, the fundamental banking experience for customers in the U.S. is so broken. You think it's bad in the UK, 10x that to get to the US. So the customer need and the ability to kind of fulfill that mission and make money work for US customers is just burning and calling our name. If you think about recently, I bought a house in the US and I had to go do my US banking and it was the most painful experience I'd ever had. And it was painful versus a UK incumbent, not just a a challenger bank. And so... There is just a huge unaddressed need. And the scale of the U.S. is undeniable in terms of if you get it right, what the runway is, is significant.
0: But I'm sure there are some incumbent banks that are trying to spin off or, or incubate a
1: digital Absolutely. bank. Within. They're all focused on different customers. So China, for example, is really focused on the underserved. So people that are underbanked overall. And Barrow Bank is also going after that market. Those are probably the two biggest ones that would come to mind. There are a lot of other digital challenges in the world, but there's a lot of different customers. It's a country of 300 million people. So
0: yeah, I big enough for everybody. Yeah, plenty of greenfield. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, so let's turn back to the company and entrepreneurship and startup. One of the things that I think is really important in the stage of growth that you're in, or That becomes much more important in the stage of growth that Monzo is in is this conflicting priorities that you need to constantly balance, maximize revenues, maximize profits, maximize market share, maximize wallet share. How do you determine those priorities? How to sequence that? in your current stage of growth?
1: I think every company has to manage trade-offs and that's true of a big company or a small company or anything in between. So of course you have to start with like, what does success look like at this period of time and work back from that. we just completed our OKR process. So we got to have those debates live. You know, what are our proof points? Where do we want to get to? And what are the trade-offs we're going to make? Having said that, we're at a different stage fundamentally we were a few, a few years ago in that we are contribution mar- margin positive per customer. So that trade-off of growth, revenue, profits that you talked about shouldn't be trade-offs, right? Our growth is coming mm-hmm. organically. Revenue should turn into positive profits on your contribution margin per customer. And so the, the trade-off is probably less arduous than the one that you described or envisaged right now. Right now, we just have a lot of runway. but. Yeah, we have a pretty robust this time OKR process that we went through as an executive team to really bottom that out. Like, where do we think the pre points need to be over? And and we really were optimizing for a six month cycle.
0: I would love to hear a little bit more about the framework for how you did the OKR, whatever you can uh, share.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we had to optimize for a few different lenses. There is, as it so was a process, effectively, the first version that was like, crowdsource, what do we think our goals are? We had done a goals process before. So we kind of had like key categories that we thought we needed to, to talk about. There's some that are PL categories or some are about customer growth. The categories are pretty obvious and sort of mm-hmm. to write down in there what we thought the key goals mm-hmm. were and then started to bait it. There was a Google doc that was live for a couple of weeks, where there was a ton of commentary in there. And then we had a strategy offsite where we bottomed that out and said, what does it mean? And we had basically five macro KRs and then three to four proof points underneath that. And we hotly debated that around the room for a while to make sure that we felt comfortable about what those meant compared it to where we are today. And the lenses that we put that through were one is like, does it keep us on the right pathway to our vision of what our company should be? And then we put the other lenses, our shareholders, our investors lens of what their expectations Mm. would be and where we are in our funding cycle, our regulators and where they would expect us to be in terms of uh, profitability and capital runway and other key proof points, our board and then our people. And so people being our customers and our employees. And so those are the lenses that we put against all of that. We scribed all of our OKRs, pressure tested them, and then we sent them out to the organization at the same time we did a bottoms up. Hmm. We had our teams doing their OKRs and laddering up to those. And at that point, we then brought those together and we said, okay, what are the critical dependencies that these OKRs have across the different businesses? How to ladder up what in our macro OKRs doesn't have enough support? Where are we oversubscribed? You know, where do those numbers don't stack, not stack together? And we adjusted accordingly. So we had the debate and the adjustment was one of three things. It was either that we needed to adjust the OKR. Because we didn't have what we, you know, the teams didn't believe that that was mm-hmm. achievable for whatever reason, or you know, when we pressure tested it, it didn't feel like it, it could be achieved. Two, we had to invest differently, so we might have believed it was achievable. We needed certain capabilities in the business or certain staffing that we didn't have, and that required us to reprioritize where we're investing. Or three, we needed to find an owner for something that didn't have an owner in the business. Mm-hmm because nobody laddered up to it. And those were also really super illuminating. You know, if you have a big goal as a team you think is really huge and there's really nobody that has their name decked against it anywhere in your company, that's a sign. So that was kind of the process. We then did like that last round of vetting and then launched them to the organization. So the different leaders, I, for example, looked at the marketing OKRs and the operations OKRs and the people OKRs and went through all of those and, and vetted them and then made sure they laddered up appropriately.
0: Okay. Well, I want to now talk about a completely separate topic, but one that I think you are in an amazing position to comment on, mm-hmm. which is around diversity and diversity in fintech. I think fintech, well, from what I've seen, is notorious for not being very diverse. Do you think that's changing and what needs to happen for there to be more diversity in fintech? Your thoughts on that?
1: Uh, I agree. I think it's not that diverse. I think fintech, by definition might be controversial to say, is like the worst version of tech. You know, finance as a traditional industry is the least diverse and tech is the least diverse and fintech is a brilliant conference <laughs> for the two of us. <laughs> you know, it's kind of the perfect storm. So uh, do I think it are we at acceptable levels? And it's like not at all. I think we're a million yeah. years away from where we need to be do I think it's changing? I'm not sure. I'm like, I'm a year in, in the middle of a pandemic and I haven't spent enough time with other fintech founders, like in a face-to-face way to tell you whether the direction of travel is the right one. But I will tell you like with my personal experience, and it was a lens that I used when I thought about joining this industry, there was like 80% of companies that I looked at. I discounted instantly because I didn't feel that I was leaving a company that had a real value for diversity. Um, and inclusion, yep. and refused to go somewhere where I didn't, where I would have to be the lightning rod to explain why that was valuable. To me, I wanted to join a company where that was already part of the DNA and the values yep. of the people that were, were founders. Um, and that was definitely true at Monzo. What you need for a company to be able to make diversity real, first, you need the tone from the top, just an absolute kind of unassailable recognition on the importance of diversity. And inclusion, and the data shows that like diverse teams lead to better shareholder and customer outcomes. The data has been out there for ages. It is like unimpeachable. If you have a diverse team, yep. you will have better shareholder returns by a significant margin, and you will have better customer outcomes. So there's really no reason not to believe in it. But you can tell at the tone from the yep. top and an executive team whether that's something that's a fundamentally held belief or lip service. Yep. onto that's super clear. I think the company is one of the first to have a dedicated DNI report from the early days. Even in our OKRs, I've discussed DNI is a very, is a part of that. It's a metric and it's part of a very curated set of OKRs. So it makes the cut and it's not debatable that it makes the cut. It never falls off the list because I fundamentally believe that what gets measured gets done. And So that is something that you need to have as a hallmark. You can't just leave it as like an underlying belief. It's important to be outright in that statement. And what we have is a commitment from every single EXCO member to make this part of the mission. So that's the tone from the top bit. And that's really important to just get Mm -hmm. started then you have to get specific and solutions oriented. And the thing is in a company of engineers and a tech company, that's actually not a big stretch. You give engineers a problem, they're going to get solutions oriented in terms of how to get there. And so, you know, the solutions are also not, a mystery. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. You know, the first thing is, you know, you need more focus at like every stage of the life cycle. So you start with hiring. Are your, and I had to do this at my last company, are your job descriptions inclusive? Are you being creative with your hiring sources? Are you finding ways to signal your commitment to diversity in the hiring process? One of our, our head of machine learning gave me a brilliant example, just, you know, tactically where he was trying to add diversity to his team. And so when he put his LinkedIn post out there, he put pictures of his team, which included some diverse faces and it 10 x his applications from diverse candidates because they could look and say, oh, this must be valuable there. It's really simple things that people just miss in terms of how do you even just open up the pipeline. Now, when you think about like, how do you manage a diverse and inclusive environment and make sure you're providing the right opportunities? I will tell you from my last job, there was a study that was done that showed that in companies, 90% of women's performance evaluations were subjective and used subjective language versus like 6% of men's. And I'm just thinking yeah. the gender bit, you know, there's obviously a lot of other aspects of diversity, but on this one, it was really interesting to me. They would use words like sharp elbows or aggressive or or on the positive side, collaborative and you know, empathetic and a man's performance review would be about outcomes yeah. and and driving results as opposed to those qualities. And so that becomes a conversation that's almost impossible to overcome in the room. And you actually have to call it out and make sure that you're taking those biases out of the conversation. And that takes reprogramming and so making sure that you're being intentional and reframing that conversation. And then when it comes to you know promotional processes again being intentional figuring out where your underrepresented populations are and what those people need in terms of sponsorship visibility and encouragement and pipelining in their own careers to be able to allow them to be on equal footing and so i think all of that is required so that takes effort yeah. but i think more than any of that it's really about creating an inclusive environment where everyone can thrive
0: I've heard the same thing and from other entrepreneurs and I've seen it in my own experience. A, it has to be from the top. If the leadership doesn't say it and believe in it, it's very hard to actually put the processes and, and the other things in place. And then the second thing, like you said, is the leadership needs to make sure that every function understands that it's important and figures out in their own function, how they're helping to do that. I think both of those have to come together for for this to happen.
1: And when you're running a mile a minute, if something takes you more time or more thoughts, the only reason that you're going to spend more time and more thought is one, if you've been told that it's a priority. And two, if you fundamentally believe that by having that diversity at the end of it, that you will have a stronger business and better outcomes. Because then it's worth it. In the same way that if you were developing a product, You would take some extra time on a feature if you knew that that was going to make it a much stronger product that was going to have much better product market fit and be able to drive all of your goals. It's the same exact thing. You need the time because the outcome you're trying to drive is extraordinary.
0: Yeah. Is there anything that I haven't asked about your experience so far at Monzo that you think would be useful to talk about, given that this is a podcast that entrepreneurs listen to as they are growing and scaling their business?
1: I guess I would just say it's so easy to look at any other company and say, like, it's all working over there. There's clearly no challenges. And when you're on the inside, all you see are the challenges. And it really requires you to take a step back. And really milestone success and look at those milestones to have a moment of perspective to understand what's been achieved. And if you're an entrepreneur that's leading a business, your teams really need you to do that. Of course, you need to be obsessed with the problems. You need to be obsessed with progress. But that context, that horizon scanning, and then the the measuring and articulating success is really important to to keep your teams moving and, and feeling the momentum and staying engaged.
0: Yeah. Feeling energized. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, we've come to the end of the podcast. At the end, I usually like to ask questions that are outside of your day-to-day role at Monzo. So you ready for the rapid round? Yeah. (laughs) Okay. My first question is an easy one. What's your favorite book? A book that's made an impact on you as a person or in your work role? Oh, personal at The God of Small
1: Things by Arundhati Roy is my favorite. Yeah. And oh. it just brings a lot of beauty to my life. So I, I often find myself rereading it. It's, it's just like a source of comfort.
0: Oh, nice. That's a great book. I've read it too. Maybe I should pick it up again. Okay. What's your favorite city in Europe? Istanbul.
1: For me, it is, I haven't been there for a while and I hope I can get there again. It is the most beautiful marriage of like history and beauty, but like modern life and cutting edge, everything from entertainment to like nightlife and food. And, and this is amazing balance of like ancient culture with huge modernity. Yeah.
0: It. Yeah. Like a nice blend of East and West. You have the souks and the markets on one end, but then you have the really ritzy, fancy, swanky restaurants on the water. Yeah. I, I really like Istanbul. What about your productivity tool? Any productivity hack or tool or tip that you could share?
1: So in my personal life, I use uh, an app called Strides, which is like a goal setting app. And I use that to kind of keep me honest on everything from like fitness to certain other things that... I'm trying to drive personally. Honestly, my biggest productivity hack is keeping my EA at Monzo and my nanny in my house like on a WhatsApp (laughs) and constantly communicating because it takes a village to like keep my life moving. And so having constant communication across home and work is is like probably my biggest factor for success.
0: And my last question is, do you have a favorite quote that you live by or that you see often at work Work usually but at home as well
1: it's an oprah quote so she used to say luck is when preparation meets opportunity so luck is not just opportunity coming your way but that preparation and and very rarely the meaning for me behind it is very rarely is luck just something that's dropped on somebody it's that they've done the hard miles and the hard slog to be ready when that opportunity comes their way the other one that i use a lot is robert there's a, a robert foster quote which is like the only way around is through it so when, when you see something, it's a big gnarly thing. You just got to go through it and you got to go through the heart of it and, and tackle it head on. And so those are probably the two that I use the most.
0: I think the second one is probably one that every entrepreneur can <laughs> appreciate at some point in some journey in their life. Well, Sujata, thank you so much for joining me on this podcast. I really enjoyed my conversation and um, I look forward to seeing uh, where you take Monzo. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review. I don't charge guests to be on the show and your ratings and review help the show stay alive. Thank you very much for listening. And until next time, keep building.